Europe is home to some of the world's greatest art, but it's not just in museums and palaces. You'll find artistic flourishes almost everywhere you look. Europeans just love to embellish everyday views from their piazzas to their back lanes. It gives European cityscapes a real joie de vivre. That's what's so great about Europe is that in many ways Europe itself is a big museum. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, my travel buddy and art historian Gene Openshaw joins us as together we look at some of the ways Europeans dress up the settings of everyday life. And Robert Edsel has published a follow-up book with more stories about the heroes who rescued Europe's greatest art during and after World War II. He'll tell us about the Monuments Men and how their work continues to this day. This greatest treasure hunt in history continues to find these missing hundreds of thousands of works of art and documents worth literally billions of dollars. Come along as we take a little time out to appreciate the artistic touches that add so much delight to our world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking at art outside the museums of Europe today on Travel with Rick Steves. Tell us what kind of art has impressed you on the streets of Europe. We're at 877-333-RICK. Or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And later in the hour, Robert Edsel brings us more stories of the heroic work of the Monuments Men, people who saved Europe's art treasures from the Nazis. In the late 19th century in France, the cry of the artist was out of the studio and into the light. Well, today, we're going out of the museum and into the light. We're checking out Europe's great art outside of the museums. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by my favorite art historian, the, the man who's helped me do a lot of teaching in art. We've co-authored a book called Europe 101, Gene Openshaw. Gene, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Many tourists, when they go to Europe, it's just sort of understood they're going to go to the museums. They're going to see 50 Titians hanging on the wall. Well, that's one way to see the art, but... Uh, what would you advise? Well, I'd say good for them for going to the museums. That's one of the great things that Europe has to offer. But there's also a better way to see art, and that is to get outside the museums. You've got to realize that art is not just the piece of art itself, but the setting and the experience that you have. It's when you enter the equation that the art experience really happens. Well, that opens it up. I mean, if you're limiting yourself to looking at something on a wall out of context... You're looking at a beautiful canvas. You see the great painting in the church, paid for by a church with lots of money, with an agenda, and they want you to see it this way. And they hired the greatest talent of the time to portray, you know, Jesus suffering on the cross or whatever. And you've also got the historic context. I feel like art is um, sort of the closest thing to a time tunnel experience you can get in your travels, even if you're not into beauty. If you can let the art take you back to that time, that heady time in Florence when Savonarola had just derailed the Medici and all of this uh, exciting humanism of the Renaissance and brought back in a theocracy, now you understand the context of that fresco that's at the top of the stairway in the monastery from where uh, Savonarola ran Florence for a period. That's what's so great about Europe is that in many ways Europe itself is a big museum. When you think about the churches— that have great art. You think about castles and palaces that have great art. You think about art in public spaces, neighborhoods that you see that themselves, the buildings are old and the great artists and people have lived there and walked those very same streets. So almost any place you go in Europe, you can have this art experience. And you have a government which represents a people and their interest in this aspect of their culture that will, at quite great expense, protect the old buildings and the culture. You walk down a street in Europe and you see a facade standing up, held up there by beams and, and, and buttresses. It's just saving the facade as a new building is built behind it in order to keep the visual integrity of the street in the old ways. And you go to a new office park and you find in, um, I think, advanced civilizations all over the world, a certain percent of the cost of the construction is required to be spent in modern art to make it a good people's own. And that's very important. I, I hate to even bring this up, but... But when you raise that thing about renovating things and so on, many of, of your listeners will have gone to St. Mark's Square, for example. Well, right now they're contemplating a big renovation of St. Mark's Square. And you'd think that this thing that is owned by humanity could be done in a way that would be aesthetically pleasing. But the main proposal they have right now to fund that renovation of St. Mark's Square is instead of putting up some kind of scaffolding, they are actually going to put up billboards. Advertising. Advertising to fund it. It's, uh, it is a kind of frightening idea. I, I remember reading a, a quote by the, the mayor of Venice, and he said something like, it's not beautiful, it's not ugly, it's necessary. 
It's yeah. like putting paid ads on the cover of the New York Times now. It's just sort of the Economic Times. They've got to turn a buck out of that. I remember a decade ago, they were doing a renovation on that same square, and at the bell tower, they had a, a big building-sized canvas that covered the scaffolding, and on it was the Leaning Tower of Pisa, just, just to confuse people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the point is they're investing a lot to uh, update and, and renovate all the buildings as they, as they deal with the acidic air and so on. Something very important when we're traveling is to see art outside of museums. It, it just opens it up. It lets you really let the whole artistic experience breathe. Uh, one fun thing is to go to places that inspired the artists. If you go to the, the humble cottage where Edvard Grieg would compose his music on the fjord, you're engulfed in nature, and then you listen to his music, and it, it makes a little more sense. Yeah, that's a beautiful place. Uh, you know, the classic one, besides Grieg's home, is going up in Paris to Butte Montmartre, the big hill kind of on the outskirts of Paris. That's where so much of the great Impressionist art was built. You know, you can see where Van Gogh lived and Toulouse-Lautrec and so on. You can see the studio where Pablo Picasso lived when he was a young man. It, this very rugged studio, it's the place that he would paint his girlfriend, Fernand, in the nude from every possible perspective, and then over the course of several months got this idea of cobbling together those various perspectives of these nudes into a single painting, inventing cubism and revealing La Damoiselle d'Avignon, the, the groundbreaking painting that came out of this very crude studio when he was a poor artist on uh, Butte Montmartre. And that gives you a whole different appreciation of Cubism, which you're going to see whether you like it or not when you go to all these galleries around Europe. Yeah, yeah. Butte Montmartre's a wonderful place. And, uh, you know, I can think of another place uh, when you mentioned that about uh, where artists live. This one, I hate to even say it because it, it, today it is a museum, but it's the Peggy Guggenheim mm -hmm. collection in Venice. It, it is a museum. And but it was, he, her, it was her villa also. But it was her home where she lived right on the Grand Canal, this beautiful setting in Venice. It's now filled with her personal collection of modern art. And what's great about it, even if you're not into modern art, is you go into there and you walk into her dining room and you realize the art that's on the wall here was on the same walls when she lived here and was welcoming all of these famous people, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono and, you know, you can Andy make Warhol this home, Andy Warhol in. and so on, you know, and it still looks exactly like a home. Yes. Another example would be the mausoleum of Salvador Dali. You know, he, he was a great theatric marketer and entertaining artist, a, a great surrealist, and his tomb is surrounded by all of his greatest art. And it's a celebration of his life, and his body is right there in a <laughs> casket in the middle of it. And leave it to Salvador Dali to give you that sort of odd juxtaposition of his casket and his goofy art. Sounds like a surrealist joke. Yeah. It is a surrealist <laughs> joke. And, and nearby is my favorite home of any dead person in Europe. I mean, as tourists, we're always looking at the home of Karl Marx, the home of Beethoven, the Rembrandt which, by the way, is a great place to go see his studio and, and see his etchings and so on. But the home of Salvador Dali, you really get his creative spirit there. You get to know his muse, Gala, and you uh, get to know his relationship with the crude fishermen that lived all around him as he took this little humble spot north of Barcelona on the coastline. He told the, the fishermen, when you're going to paint your boats, when you're cleaning your paintbrushes, do it on my front door. <laughs> so all of the different colors of the boats are painted just in a way of cleaning the brushes on Dali's front door. All over Europe, you can connect with the art a little bit broader than in the museums. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, and we've got on the line Stephanie from Krakow, Poland. Stephanie, thanks for your call. Hey. Are you calling from Krakow right now? Yes, we are. Wonderful. Thanks for contributing to our conversation. Do you have any thoughts on enjoying art outside of museums? My husband and I have found out that to see sculpture, we've enjoyed going to the cemeteries. Uh, in the cities that we visited. Tell me an example. Well, Milan, the monumental cemetery there, the sculpture is, is beautiful. It's not just the historic and the old, but it's also the contemporary sculpture I that adorns all the graves. I absolutely love that museum. It's, it's my favorite experience, you could argue, in Milano. And it's Art Deco. It's Art Nouveau. It's World War I soldiers. It's uh, great romantic poets. It's, a mon it's called the Monumental Cemetery, isn't it? Right, right. And then in Paris and Venice and Florence, every time we've gone to a city, we try to search out the cemeteries. Let's think about this, Jean. You can go to the cemetery for the Protestants in Rome. A lot of expats were in Rome in olden days, and when they died, they couldn't be, I guess they had to be buried 
not in a Catholic graveyard or something. So they have this place where a lot of the Romantic poets, Shelley and Keats, I think, are buried. John Keats is buried, yeah. Out by the pyramid in Rome. And uh, Stephanie, you're in Krakow. One of the most powerful cemeteries I've visited is in Krakow, where when the Nazis came in, they literally bulldozed the Jewish cemetery. And today, those broken and crushed and disfigured tombstones are actually sculptures in what remains of the Jewish cemetery. Right. In uh, Kashmir's, they have made a wall. Kazimierska or whatever. That's the, the Jewish district of Krakow. Right, right. Yeah, Stephanie mentioned the cemetery that you can visit in Venice, and that particular cemetery, San Michele, is, like everything in Venice, on an island, and you have to take yes. a boat there, and that's all take that's a boat on over. Yeah, and it's wonderful, and you just walk, and you, you enter this city of the dead. Um, most of the people that you wouldn't know, but they often put the photograph of the dead person on there, and you feel like you know these people. That adds a lot in cultures where they do that. Stephanie, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. And Nate is on the phone in Orem, Utah. Nate, thoughts on art outside of museums? Some of the most interesting art that I've ever seen has been in Vienna, Austria, the Central Friedhof, the Central Cemetery. It was one that was actually commissioned in the 1800s, and it was a failure because people wanted to put their loved ones in their own local cemeteries. Then the idea was come upon, well, let's dig up all the famous people that we know of. Yeah, Beethoven, Brahms, Beethoven, Schubert, Brahms. yeah. They're all dug up and moved to the Central Friedhof? Yeah. Yes, they yeah. were all dug up, moved to the Central Friedhof, and then all the sculptors and artists are in their own groups. The composers are in their own group, and there's just beautiful sculptures on top of the artists. Some of them, they did their own work. When my wife lived in Austria for a couple of years, uh, she learned that the death culture in Austria was really important, and you saved from when you were a little kid in order to get your tombstone. Wow. And so there is amazing tombstones and, and things around. So the Austrians take a great interest in where their mortal remains will spend the the rest of time. Yes. I, I know in uh, Hallstatt, uh, the space is very limited, so you, you can stay in the cemetery only as long as your descendants will pay the rent on that plot. <laughs> yeah, and as and soon as there's been three or four generations, I don't care how good a guy you are, they stop paying <laughs> the rent on you. Then they take you up and they clean you off and they stack your uh, skull in the, in the bone house and make room for uh, other people whose relatives care more to pay the rent on your tombstone. But after they dug up all the people and put them in the Friedhof, it, it became really popular, the Central Friedhof. Okay, so when we go to Vienna, we want to go to the Central Friedhof and see the tombs of... Uh, and they sort of jump-started it by putting in Beethoven and Brahms and Mahler and, and those guys. And the artist section is actually right next to the composer section. Okay. All over okay. Europe, we've got people that have a more or less interest of uh, cemeteries. In Paris, there's actually enough interest in the cemeteries to keep a book in print called Permanent Parisians. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're thinking about art for the living and the dead outside of museums. We're at 877-333-7425 and radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email address. And there's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw. Gene co-authors an uh, art book that I've written for travelers called Europe 101. Gene, when we travel through Europe, we see a lot of emphasis put on public art. We have fountains, sculpture parks, uh, piazzas, even freeway art in France. 
people appreciate that today. They're willing to pay for it, it seems like. Yeah, it's a truism that Europe is going to pay more for public art. Now, I think in America, only maybe 10% of American art is funded with the government, where in Europe, it's more like 80% is funded by the government. And so they kind of view it as a public service in the same way that in our country we offer you know, public roads and we offer uh, libraries for use and so on. And for them, the visual experience is just as important. So you've got fountains in public areas. You've got uh, artists that are commissioned to do statues. It's just this general notion that you don't go to a museum to see a piece of art hanging on the wall. The art is the bigger experience. You, you go out for your cup of coffee, you're surrounded by harmonious architecture. Yeah. And at great expense, they've kept those facades up because you're going to sit and pay too much for a cup of coffee and you want to look at a beautiful... Mozart facade or whatever. Yeah. Of course, they've got a long tradition of doing that. If you think about public art, you're talking about, heck, you're talking about the Acropolis, which was a publicly funded program in Athens after their entire city had been destroyed by the Persians to rebuild the central part of their city with all of these temples. And this was no cinder block temple. I mean, this thing is <laughs> incredible aesthetics. Yes. And, and using only the finest of materials and all of it public funded. Now, when we visit the churches, that is, I got to say, whether it's a pagan temple or a Christian church, you see the priority for the art. And when you go to the churches today in Europe, it is a place to see the great art. I am constantly impressed as how you can wait in a long line to see a Michelangelo in a museum, or you can just know what church to go to, and you can see a great Michelangelo statue right there. Yeah. You can go to the Church of the Ferrari in Venice. That's one of my favorite places. Fra oh, yeah. The Ferrari is great. It's got two of Titian's most impressive altarpieces. You know, we're talking about uh, funeral art, and the Ferrari's got a couple of big tombs there. You Canova. know, this pyramid-shaped tomb where the artist is... Actually, it's not even the artist. Canova is not buried inside there. Only his heart is put inside there. But it is a memorial to him, and then outside they've got statues of a muse who's crying, and, you know, even the Lion of Venice is walking up to the front door of that tomb, and he's got tears in his eyes. We have Sherry on the phone in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Sherry, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I just wanted to say that when we look for art, you can look anywhere, because we were in Rome, and we went into a hardware store, which is one of our favorite places to shop for souvenirs, and we were looking at the hardware, looked up at the ceiling, and here's a wonderful fresco. The hardware store had been a palace. Oh, my goodness. You know what one of my favorite uh, art experiences is? It's very similar to that. It's also in a store in, in Paris, the Galleries Lafayette, um, a department store. And those places, when they were built in the 19th century, were built to be artistic uh, cathedrals to shopping. You go in there, and you look up into the ceiling, and you see this wonderful kind of stained glass dome that arches over it. And when you're in there, obviously their intent was to make you buy more, but you feel like you're in these elegant settings. A lot of the stores, a lot of the public buildings in Europe, whether it's a post office or whether it's a place where you can buy your uh, napkins, are intended to have that artistic experience. That artistic flair. And you get that when you find the great gallerias in uh, Italy, in Milano and in Napoli, You've got these incredible galleries made from the 1870s celebrating the unification of Italy, and they are these vast halls with elegant shops under huge arcades, all beautifully decorated. I mean, you look on the floor and the mosaic work in the ceiling and the fine ironwork, and you go, wow, they had a real appreciation for the artistic fine points. And it kept you dry when it rained. And it kept you ready to spend some money. Sherry, thanks for your call. Thank you. Spencer's on the phone in Austin, Texas. Yes. Uh, I recently did six months in Europe, and one of my favorite places to see art was actually in the streets of Granada. There's just graffiti everywhere. Um, most graffiti in Europe, and including a lot of places in Granada, are just kids running around spray-painting their initials or whatever it is that they do onto walls. But in Granada, there's these artists that on side streets, especially in uh, the Albizen area, it's, it's just incredible art. I have all these wonderful photographs of really detailed and, and creative art spray-painted on random alley walls. Now, Spencer, what I noticed all over Spain was a lot of stencil graffiti. Are you talking about that stencil uh, graffiti? Some of it's stencil graffiti, but no. Uh, there, I mean, there's You're talking very, political very, murals. Uh, yeah, there are some that are political, but there were some that were just for fun, like there'd be um, a hole in a wall, and they, it was a really cool graffiti art of a little boy looking up, and it was like kind of like a cloud thought, and you look out, and there's over the city from the Albaicen 
and it's a little boy dreaming about it looks like the city. Uh, cracks and walls are used as pieces of the art. Incorporated um, right into the art. Right, right. And there are whole alleys that appear to be mostly abandoned, like people don't use them very often, and it's kind of often out of the way. You had to search for it, but there's some really incredible, it looks like just for the sake of doing it, intricate art. There's cities that sort of enable people to do this in, in right. Berlin, and what yeah. the Berlin Wall has got that long, what's the East Side Gallery? Yeah, the East Side Gallery, that was one of the coolest things I saw as well in terms of non-traditional art um, away from the museum. Yeah, Spencer has touched on something that is a very big thing in Europe. It, it's often called street art, kind of a catch-all name, street art. Uh, other people would call it vandalism, because that's right. really what it is, is unauthorized art. It, it covers everything from graffiti, people you know, spray painting on a wall, to um, artists who will paint on the sidewalk and create this great three-dimensional illusion Sometimes it just even involves like street musicians who are performing in an unauthorized place. On the positive side, it's sort of the, the people's art. It's organic. It's coming right up from the grassroots. It's coming right up from the grassroots yeah. and, and is the flip side of publicly funded art. It seems like in Granada, though, the artists that were really good, there, there's one, I found his house. His whole house is covered in this graffiti and all the streets around it are sort of equally, and they're very inspirational. You know, an old woman praying, uh, children playing the piano, a kid riding a bike looking happy, joyous. I put them all on my Flickr, if that matters. It, it was really incredible, and the really good artists, it appears, are thoughtful about where they put it. It seemed to be on, on back alleys and not on main streets, and, you know, they didn't put graffiti on churches and banks and yeah. institutional places. They're thoughtful about that. I've got several friends that collect this sort of... Uh, I know a little bit about stencil graffiti because I've traveled with people who are really into that. And, you know, I never even noticed it before. Like Gene yeah. said, I just thought of it as, as vandalism. And, and it's then, everywhere. It's a yeah, subculture. I all over. I think aloud, yeah. You know, Judith from Omaha, Nebraska just emailed us, and she says, I'm a fan of contemporary and urban art and was wondering what are some of the best places to see street art and outdoor modern art in Europe. So, Spencer, you really like Granada. Granada was... You have to go looking for it because it's just not on the main streets you know, that pushes you out into the side streets. One of the highlights for me, because I like this political mural art, is going up to Northern Ireland and in troubled cities. And entire buildings are covered with powerful murals, uh, yeah. either sympathetic with the Protestant cause or the Catholic cause, or I should say Republican and Unionist causes. Gene, what, do you have any favorite areas for street art? Uh, rather than getting specific about geography, I often find in almost any city a place where you'll find that is near the train stations. Many mm -hmm. is the time I've boarded a train and you're clacking your way out of the station, and uh, there's just yeah. all these ugly brick walls and so on, and then suddenly you come across a great piece of art that otherwise you're going to be looking at uh, a dirt-grimed wall. Bilbao and San Sebastian were that way. Uh, mm -hmm. That goes along with the, the political and sectarian parts guess, of that as well. I guess I would challenge some of our older or more conservative uh, travelers to remember it, it, it might be good to give it a positive spin instead of a that's vandalism kind of spin. I was traveling with my son, who really likes this, what looks like gang art to me, you know, all this graffiti art tagging these buildings. And I, I started looking at it a little bit differently, like I did the stencil graffiti. And it is the voice of a subculture. And yeah. it's there uh, when you know where to look. I mean, I'll tell you what, there was one, I wish I could remember the street. If you go up the road that goes toward the Alhambra, you, you can see down over this area, and I think it's to the south. Okay. Um, there's one, it's a little boy, and he's got a, a PlayStation 2 controller in his hand. And there's two vultures around him, and they're wearing top hats with money signs and euro signs on them. And the phrase in Spanish underneath of it says, um, this is what is teaching our children, or these are our children's new parents, or something along those lines. It was very political. It was very... Oh, yeah. There's a lot of this sensitivity about globalization and what right. it's doing to our soul. and Absolutely. how Everybody's just becoming a barcode. My, my friend who uh, collects this kind of art actually has a tattoo, which is a barcode of his name. So he's sort of tuned into that sort of thing. Spencer, <laughs> thanks for your call. Thank you very much. You know, something related to that, Gene, is pub art. I just love to go into drinking places anywhere in Europe and see how they decorate their place for their local clientele. And it's, it's not famous art, but it's stuff that really connects with the local clientele and they can relate to it. Are you talking dogs playing poker, that kind of nah, art? that and, kind of stuff. Okay. I'm talking, you know, the, uh, the patriotism or the sectarian passions. You go to a, a Protestant pub in the north of uh, Ireland, it's decorated differently than a, a Catholic pub in the north of Ireland, this sort of thing. Mike's on the phone in Austin, Texas. Mike, thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. In May, I went to Italy, and I went to Cinque Terre, where you always recommend. That's our second or third time there, me and my wife. 
and uh, we decided to go to the main city just north of there in Levanto. We didn't know anything about it, but we just happened to stumble on uh, a lemon festival they were having. And they, they had, <laughs> That's sort of an action art. Yeah. You know, on the streets, though, like what happened is all the people came out in front of their houses and drew with chalk on the streets, like a uh, design, like some were geometric, some were religious, some were really elaborate, and some were simple. And kids, old people, you could see there's a competition going on between some of the neighbors. And for miles through the main town in uh, Levanto, they drew these designs on the street. I think they were worshiping a lemon goddess, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they filled in the drawings with uh, natural materials, flower petals, coffee grounds. Oh, I like that. I've seen that in churches and so on on certain holy days. They make these patterns on the floor with whatever is the local uh, flowers or what represents their economy and their cuisine and their culture. Yeah, uh, I saw the the children, it seemed like their task was to go off in the mountains around Cinque Terre on the nice treks and pick just baskets and baskets full of flower petals. All right, well, that's something to look for in our travels. You know, if you can be in these towns during their festivals, you're certainly going to get that sort of uh, exuberant culture. Yeah, if, if you think about art and the art experience as being a, more a multimedia type of experience than a local festival with its folk art, with its traditions, with its bands, its people wearing their uniforms, with the floats and the, and the flags and the cuisine and so on, a festival is itself... It's an art festival. ...is an art festival. Thanks, Mike, for the call. Happy Lemon Festival. <laughs> you too. Adam in Fresno, California. Adam, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Good. We're talking about art outside of the museums, uh, sort of a different kind of art. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my favorite kind of outdoor art in Europe is definitely the street musicians that you can find in just about any touristy or non-touristy town. Some of the most famous are the ones that ply the metro in Paris. But you're right, you'll find them all over. You'll find string quartets playing out in the squares in Munich. Uh, you'll find guys playing the accordion next to a fountain down in Rome. One of the things I like about the street musicians in the metro in Paris is they have a very interesting form of street performer there. You'll be riding the metro, a lady gets on, and instead of playing an instrument or singing a song or whatever, she just stands at the end of the car and starts to talk, obviously in French. And what she does is she tells her sad story of woe, of what has brought her to this place in life. And then after about a minute, she walks through and takes collections. It's a very different form of street theater. Maybe uh, more effective than playing an accordion. I've heard some bad accordion players. <laughs> well, all over Eastern Europe, there's good accordion players coming in from Russia and Romania. And you notice there's a lot of people, as these economies are in tough times, they'll go to more wealthy countries and they'll take their musical talents with them and they'll just sit in the corner and actually make a living by performing that way. I was just in Florence and I noticed that the city is actually giving people license to have the very best place in town every night at 11 or something like this so they can perform quality street music with the uh, authorization of the city. In, in Florence on the Ponte Vecchio, it's like going to a, a paid concert almost but you're sitting there on the Ponte Vecchio in a very romantic setting listening to some quality musicians. Adam, thanks for the call. Thank you. Nicole's on the phone from Dallas. Hi there. What is your experience uh, with art? I wanted to mention two things. Um, the first thing I thought of while I was on hold, and I'm not sure if anybody mentioned it yet, the flower carpet in Brussels. I was thinking about that when we were talking about the, uh, the local flowers and everything decorating the church floor or the main square, the greatest square in Europe, some people say, in Brussels. Tell us about that. Uh, every other year, and it would be an even-numbered years in mid-August, someone designs a traditional carpet design for the entirety of Grand Place, and it is recreated in flowers. It's only up for three days over a weekend, so and you with, have with, to be there the right time. And it has all the minute detail of a tapestry, almost, it seems like. Almost. And actually, that reminds me of the other favorite outside the museum art um, I've seen is the Gobelin Tapestry Workshop in Paris. It's just absolutely fascinating to take the tour, even if you don't understand French. That's great because everybody sees the great tapestries hanging on the palace walls and so on, but you actually went to Europe's most famous workshop for tapestries, Gobelin, in Paris, and they welcome tourists? They do. Um, they only have tours on a certain schedule during the day, and they're only in French. But even if you can't understand what they're telling you, your eyes can certainly appreciate the work that you're seeing created right in front of you by these people that are maintaining this ancient craft in the textile arts. It's beautiful. 
I've seen some great handiwork done, tapestries, but also things like lace making that you see in the low countries. These old ladies whose eyes are going, they got to wear their eyeglasses, and they're sitting there with about two dozen bobbins, and they're sitting there weaving them into this intricate pattern, somehow following this pattern they have inside their heads that's been drilled into them, you know, for generations and creating these very intricate designs. I love seeing artists at work. And lovingly handing that down to the next generation as younger students are around them watching this time-honored art form. One other thing I'd mention about the Gobelin tapestries, those tapestries are typically destined for display in government buildings or embassies, so you'll never have a chance to see the finished products except in the workshop. That's interesting because I was in, I believe it was Stockholm, and there was some festival. They opened up the Royal Palace in Stockholm, and I got to see one of these modern, precious tapestry works of art that you're talking about. And it just blew me away to see the quality of tapestry work done in our generation, uh, designed for behind closed doors in the palaces and so on, that maybe in a couple hundred years that will be uh, open for the tourists. And it's nice to know that that art form is alive and well as we move deeper into the 21st century. Nicole, thanks for your call. Goodbye. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been joined by Gene Openshaw, who co-authors a book with me called Europe 101. We've been talking about enjoying art outside of the museums. You know, Gene, the, the whole idea is... Open up your senses, open up your appreciation, give art an extra dimension. Can you give us a parting thought on, on how we might incorporate that into our travels to get more out of our travels from an art appreciation point of view? Yeah, I, I like the fact that you use the word dimension. We often think as just, you know, a painting is art, and that's all it is in a museum. But, you know, really that's just a two-dimensional object. And to experience art or experience the world with the full multimedia experience that Europe offers, that's what people tend to come away with. You know, I think, for example, of, like, say, being in Venice in St. Mark's Square or something like that. The sun's going down, the lanterns are starting to come on, the tourists go home. You're not necessarily staring at a painting, but you turn your eyes and you look and you catch a statue somewhere. That's beautiful in and of itself. Now add in the other senses that you're experiencing at the time. The cafe orchestra is playing a little music there. It's a song that reminds you of, of your youth or of someone that you once loved or something. And so now you've got the emotions going. A cool breeze is coming off the sea. You can feel that. You can smell the sea. And you're sitting there sipping a glass of Valpolicella wine. You know, you're, you're, all of your senses are engaged, and that really is what the art experience is about, an art outside of museums. Giving art every dimension possible, experiencing the art, the love of life that we find when we explore this fascinating world. Gene Openshaw, thank you very much. Thank you. Next up, stories of people who rescued Mona Lisa and company from the Nazis and how their work continues today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's been called the greatest theft in history, followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. We're talking about the Nazis' passion for collecting all the art and bringing it together, destroying art they didn't like, and collecting art they did like, either in their own personal collections or in some giant great museum. And then, of course, the challenge presented the Allied powers to find this art and get it back to their proper places safely and in one piece. And a man who has done a lot to bring light to this exciting story and to document it in his books is Robert Edsel. And Robert Edsel joins us today to talk about his, his newest book called The Monuments Men. Robert, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Now, you've spent years getting into this. You've, you've co-produced the documentary film The Rape of Europa. You wrote a fascinating book, which we've talked to you earlier about, called Rescuing Da Vinci. 
And today you've written this new book called Monuments Men, which it sort of turns it a little bit into a thrilling, suspense-filled story. And you've almost made this history a a fascinating novel as well. First of all, get us up to speed just on the, the big picture, the greatest theft in history, followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. Well, Adolf Hitler had this ambition to build the world's greatest museum in his hometown of Linz, Austria. And, of course, the greatest museum in the world would have to have the greatest museum treasures. And they weren't all in Germany. So a subplot of the war was to steal the greatest works of art from these countries that were being invaded. They had lists of works that they intended to remove before the invasions even took place. This was premeditated looting on a scale the world had never seen before. And a group of museum directors, curators, and art historians, artists, and architects in the United States shortly after Pearl Harbor, recognized the United States was going to have to get involved in this war and at risk was destroying the greatest cultural treasures of Western civilization in the course of combat. Of course, at the time, they didn't really realize the extent of the theft. And they were called Monuments Men. They volunteered for service, average age about 40 years old. And this new book on the Monuments Men, for the first time ever, tells the story through their letters home written to loved ones during combat and the incredibly exhilarating and terrifying experiences they went through going into salt mines and caves and castles looking for some of the millions of works of treasures, paintings by Leonardo da Vinci, sculpture by Michelangelo that were stolen by the Nazis. And it is an adventure thriller because that's what they went through. Now, you write about how during the war the group was small. I mean, I think it peaked at like 60 people, and then after the war it became a bigger operation with up to 350 people. So this story goes on after the end of World War II. It does. In fact, the story is still going on today. As you pointed out, within a month or so after the landings in northern Europe and D-Day in Normandy, there were only about a dozen monuments officers responsible for protecting all of northern Europe, churches, museums, uh, important structures, and then, of course, trying to find the works of art that had been stolen by the Nazis. At the end of the war in May 1945, they were up to about 60 or so in all of Europe. But as the war came to a conclusion, they had in more than a thousand hiding places, paintings, sculptures, stained glass, church bells from cathedrals throughout Europe that were located. And it placed them in an incredible predicament trying to figure out what do you do when you find these museum quality works hidden in places underground? How do you go about getting them back to the countries from which they were stolen? And that's a saga that continues to this day. Now let's do this uh, little adventure of trying to get into Hitler's mind. I mean, he was possessed with this idea to create the biggest art museum ever, and it was in his humble hometown in Austria on the Danube River called Linz, and I learned from reading your book that he actually had art scholars traveling before the war inventorying stuff that would ultimately be the plunder of the war. That's right, Rick. The museum directors in Germany and some of the curators were pressed into service to make these lists of works of art. They had all sorts of rationale for why they weren't really stealing them. Some of them had Germanic origins. In any event, they had these lists. They intended to remove them. And works of art such as the Chartoreski paintings, the great Leonardo da Vinci, Lady with an Ermine, Rembrandt's Good Samaritan and Raphael's Portrait of a Young Man were stolen from the Chartoreski Museum in Krakow, Poland, Within a month of the invasion, they didn't go to the museum where these works of art were supposed to be hanging. They went to the country estate where they'd been hidden because their intelligence was so precise they knew exactly where the paintings were. I'm so fascinated in this story to me because I love the art of Europe. And I went decades without realizing the peril that all the great cultural wonders that we enjoy today as travelers went through just in uh, the lifetime of our parents, you know. When you write about how Hitler never got out of Germany and Austria much earlier in his life, but then he finally went down to Rome and to Florence, and he then started with his architect buddy Albert Speer thinking of Berlin as being the new Rome and Linz, his birthplace, being the new Florence, and how he was That's right. psychologically vindicated after being rejected from the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, where he wanted to be an artist, right? And then he would get back at them by building the greatest cultural center just upstream in Linz. He intended to diminish Vienna's cultural influence and make Linz a cultural capital of Europe as a revenge for having been rejected from school. And I lived in Florence for five years, so it's a somewhat a terrifying thought to imagine Hitler wandering through the hallways of the Uffizi Museum, muttering under his breath that how enthusiastic he was about seeing these great works of art. An artist among artists was his perspective. And of course, Mussolini's wandering behind him thinking, you know, I'm so tired of seeing all these paintings because Mussolini, ironically, being Italian, had no interest in these works of art. I love the image you paint in your book of Hitler going through the museum so excited and greedy and Mussolini kind of going, I just want a plate of pasta. Let's get out of here. 
Well, you make such a great point earlier about the risk of these works of art. I mean, when you consider Rose Vallon, who I believe's uh, certainly, I don't know if any of us can name uh, the greatest woman who was a heroine during World War II. We always focus so much on men, but I think she might well be the person, this extraordinarily brave French woman that worked in the Jeux de Pomme Museum, located in the Tuileries Garden across from the Place de la Concorde in Paris, that worked under the eyes of the Nazis for four years without them knowing that she understood German making lists of the works of art that she saw that the Nazis had stolen that were passing through this museum. And she even made a catalog entry one day in her secret notes in 1943 that said the paintings were slashed at the Louvre storage area, have been brought back to the Jeu de Pomme, an entire truck full, approximately five to 600 works of art, and they were burned from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the museum garden under German surveillance. And these were paintings by Matisse, Picasso, and other important modern artists that are beloved in the world today. Wow. So Jennifer in, in uh, San Francisco emailed us, and she asked exactly about this, uh, Robert. She said, what about Monuments Women? Your book is called Monuments Men. Were there any, and uh, was it indeed only men involved? And here you're saying that one of the heroes of this movement was the woman who was in charge of the inventory at the Jeu de Palme, which was a clearinghouse for all of this art. The Jeu de Pomme was uh, an area that's kind of separated from the Louvre, and so I think the Nazis felt like they would not necessarily have the watchful eye of all the people if they were trying to move things in and out of the Louvre. And she was there in charge, basically the manager of the museum, keeping this secret inventory that she would go home. She had a fascinating memory and make notes of works of art, some of which were obvious that she recognized, like Vermeer's Astronomer, which can be seen in the Louvre today, many other works that she would track the shipping invoices numbers, and ultimately befriended one of our key monuments heroes. In fact, the fellow who's on the front cover photo of the book, Jim Rormer, who went on to become the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I love the shot of the, the GIs in the 1940s here. Our, our GIs over there, they've got their guns in their in their holsters or nearby, but they're holding this art. So proud and so thankful that they were able to, to save that. I'm uh, Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsel. He founded the Monuments Men Foundation, designed to preserve the legacy of the heroic men and women who saved Europe's art. Robert Edsel has co-produced the documentary film Rape of Europa. He's written a book called Rescuing Da Vinci, and we talked with Robert uh, recently about this book. And uh, anybody who's interested in that extensive interview, it's available on our archives. And Robert's newest book is The Monuments Men, telling the story of the greatest theft in history followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. Rescuing Da Vinci, that tells the story with beautiful pictures and, and more of a history book. And this book almost reads more like a novel. Do these books complement each other or are they redundant? No, I think they're entirely complementary. Rescuing Da Vinci, you know, what do you do when you have a story that's of such enormous significance to World War II that's been overlooked by some historians uh, and has never really been told? It's something that got lost in the fog of history. So my feeling was we need to tell the story using photographs at the beginning to let people see things that they know about, works of art like the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, the David by Michelangelo, but see them in a light that they've never seen them before, how they were protected during the war. And you write a fascinating chapter in your book about the salt mine at Altausee. We know it now from a sightseeing point of view, but historically, Altausee was one of the huge receptacles deep in the mountain where they would store all these art treasures, and then how one crate was filled not with more art but with explosives, and how these guys realized this really is a drama. But at the end of the day, what people connect with, what people want to know, is that people story. And in Monuments Men, we tell the story using these guys' letters home that no one's ever seen before. In fact, some of the families didn't believe me that they would have these things. So it was a real detective effort on our part to find them and allow the reader to be able to be there with them when they're going to a place like Altausay in a race against time as the Nazis are planting these mines and explosive devices to destroy a cave that was filled with more than 10,000 works of art, including sculpture by Michelangelo, the Bruges Madonna, which you know about from Bruges, Belgium, uh, Vermeer's astronomer and his artist studio, which is in Vienna at the Kunsthistorische Museum, and so many other beloved works of art. William's on the phone in Miami. William, thanks for your call. Oh, hello. How are you gentlemen doing today? Doing well, thanks. Excellent. Uh, I read Rape of Europa a couple years ago after I think uh, Mr. Edsel was on the show. And uh, I was just, after you know, seeing that and knowing what we know from the experience of World War II, why was that more done to safeguard Iraqi art treasures uh, during the invasion of uh, Baghdad? 
It's a fantastic question, and it's something I do address in The Monuments Men in the final chapters. It's really what's motivated my telling of this story, both to recognize these great heroes, but to preserve their legacy, because in my opinion, as I seem to indicate yourself, it's unforgivable that our nation didn't know the history of these great men and women and the legacy that they left us on how to protect cultural treasures during combat. And in Iraq, I don't think uh, from the leadership down, people appreciated the importance of the word patrimony, the emotions that are charged in that word among countries and peoples throughout the world. They value these treasures. They expect other people, whether they like them or not, to respect them. And I think the sad part is so many men and women in uniform from this country would absolutely love to have protected these things before the conflict was consummated and to do everything they could do to try and mitigate the damage. But they have to be given orders. Someone has to give soldiers orders. They're not entrepreneurs. And they need to understand why these works of art are important whether or not they are something that we appreciate. Respect for other people's culture is critical. So it was a horrible mistake and something that I think was a stain on our country that will take quite some time to overcome. And so I think the important way we educate our elected leaders and also military leaders is for them to understand that the great leaders, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, General Patton and Bradley, set these standards that during war we protect cultural treasures so much as war allows. And the Monuments Men were the instruments of that policy. Well, now that the damage has been done, do they have, a, like, modern monuments men looking for these? These things, are, I guess, are more like artifacts and the great paintings that were lost during World War II, and I guess they'd probably be hard to recover, wouldn't they? The, well, they, they, you're correct that they are artifacts, but they can be recovered. And today in the Army, there are cultural affairs officers that are kind of the modern-day monuments men uh, that are doing a great job in tracking down so many of these things and recovering them and returning them to Iraq. Of course, the problem is, as our parents taught us, first impressions count. And the first impression that was created in Iraq was that Americans don't understand this culture. They don't care about works of art that are Islamic. And that was horrible, horrible damage. And I, quite honestly, as important as these things are, think the damage that was done was far greater to the reputation of our country than it was necessarily to the works of art alone. And that's something that we always have to be sensitive to. Yeah, it just would have been so much easier to put a couple guards at the museum entrance there when they were invading. And Can I ask you one, one World War II question? Sure. Do you think they're ever going to find the Bellini, Madonna, and Child? And is there any, is there any trail on that? I think many of these works of art that were portable will surface in the course of time. My father, who was a World War II veteran in the Pacific, died last year. He was 81 years old, so he was a younger end of World War II veterans. But over the next five to ten years, so many of the people that fought in World War II will pass in all countries. And as they do, I think in attics and in basements, hanging on walls, things are going to surface that people don't necessarily know were value. They might have been taken as a trophy of war without any pernicious intent. And the kids are going to inherit in these things. And I think that we all have a front row seat to watch this exciting chapter of World War II be written. And I think the story about the Monuments Men is a story which will allow everybody to understand what's at stake here and how we can all participate in finishing the job the Monuments Men started many years ago. Well, that did happen in the case of Lieutenant Joe uh, Mader right in Texas. When he died, his relatives uh, got the things he stole from that church in Germany and liberated stole, whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, The case that you refer to was an American GI that uh, took something that wasn't something that was liberated or trinket of war. He stole an important work of art out of a church in Germany, and that wasn't allowed then. I mean, General Bradley at one point in time issued a magnificent order that said, we're a conquering army, not a pillaging army. And I think that's been the policy of the military since then. If it's a sword or a flag, that's one thing. But these important works of art don't just belong to Germany, the United States. They belong to countries of all nations. And that's why travel is so important, I think, for people to understand the commonalities that we have and affection that we have for these important works of art that represent the origins of all civilization. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the, the relatives actually collect on that from that church? Uh, I mean, they actually pretty the, much ransomed it back. The handling of that in 1981 was really cutting-edge case. It's the first prominent case that arose like that. The family did receive a payment. I can assure you that in the world in which we're in today, uh, the law has evolved to a point in time that would not occur. William, thanks for your call. We got to Thank run you along. very much. Yeah. Enjoyable. Bye. Robert, didn't they just find a Monet and a Renoir a couple years ago in somebody's safety deposit box? Yes, they did, Rick. In fact, that is something that I discuss, again, in the closing chapter of my book, Believe it or not, uh, there's still some Nazis or ex-Nazis out there. I'm not sure that I'm a believer that there is such a thing as an ex-Nazi 
in some of these hardcore cases, but Bruno Losa, who was the art advisor, one of the art advisors to Herman Goering, he's actually in a photo in the doorway of the Jeu de Pomme as Goering's exiting the building, a photo that we have in the Monuments Men book. He died a couple of years ago. He was 91, 92 years old, and sometime thereafter, there was a safety deposit box found in Switzerland, and much to uh, some people's surprise, there were some important Impressionist paintings that have been missing since the war located, and the effort to find the owners of those continues. So this story is something that we continue to read about every day. Of course, conflicts are going to continue to happen worldwide. And I think the story of the Monuments Men, even in these difficult uh, economic times, is such an uplifting story about why these middle-aged men that were accomplished, they had families, they had every reason in the world to not volunteer and go into combat to try and save these works of art, but they did. In fact, two lost their lives. And I think it's a story that's an uplifting story and certainly an incredible adventure and one I'm really excited to share with your listeners. In fact, when we think about Hitler's vision, Robert, for this uh, this German Uber Museum, it's fascinating to know that that Hitler was so obsessed with his art collection that in his will he makes almost no provision for the Reich, you know, his empire that he worked so hard to build, but he's just focused on his paintings. That's right, Rick. It's really incredible because I think it's been something that's terribly uh, underestimated by historians and other people that when he's a teenager, he's hugely impassioned to become an artist and be recognized as such, and he's devastated and humiliated over his rejection at art school. That's on the early side of his life. Uh, Less than 24 hours before he kills himself, he's dictating his will, and the one provision that he emphasizes so strongly is that the paintings that he collected in the course of his lifetime go towards this museum he always wanted to see built in Lynn. So he's absolutely obsessed with art from the early stages of his life to the latter stages, and I think that really underscores the challenge that these monuments men had to overcome in the course of their service. And just from a selfish sightseeing point of view, I'm so thankful I don't have to go to Linz. It's a dreadful little town on the Danube to see the greatest art of Europe. <laughs> I'm glad you said it, because <laughs> you're right. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. If you go to Linz, Hitler's birthplace, nobody wants to talk about Hitler there. And I can just imagine this little podunk town with all of the Mona Lisas and everything from every country in Europe. Robert Edsel, author of The Monuments Men, thank you so much for giving us an appreciation of the, the value to all of Western civilization for the patrimony and the art treasures of each of these countries, national heritage and the heroics that the Monuments Men showed as we get the art back in its rightful place. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We have help from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to Eric Bright at KERA Dallas for studio help with today's show. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. It includes a link to street art photographed in Granada from one of today's callers. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.